Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Caitlin Burgoyne, CEO of Customer Camp. I'm super excited to chat with her. She's known as the Customer Whisperer. Thank you so much for joining me today, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm very, very excited to talk to you. You're someone who I've followed on on Twitter for a long time. And so what I usually do with these episodes uh, is I I go back to the beginning. I like to get an understanding of of kind of your career journey and, and how it's contributed to where you're at today. So why don't we start there? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great way to kick things off because I definitely am where I am today because of making lots of mistakes before. (laughs) But I started off my career in marketing, started working at an agency, got kind of like what I perceived to be my dream job right out of school and stayed there for a couple of months, got to work with all the big brands in Atlantic Canada and see how, you know, some of the best advertising that was coming out at the time was being made. And got really lucky, got kind of headhunted by a gentleman who had just sold his agency. And he said, I want to do something different. I don't want to start another agency. I don't want a lot of headcount, but I've got these few big clients and I would love to bring you in as like a contractor. So you'd be a freelancer, but I guarantee you a certain amount of work. How do you Mm -hmm. feel about that? I was like, that's amazing. So I get to have like my foot in both doors, be an employee on one sense, but also have the opportunity to kind of build my own business. Mm -hmm. So after only two months of working kind of in the industry, left and started my own business. (laughs) And a year and a half in, you know, I've grown, I've got uh, three employees of my own. I'm doing a lot less of his work or subcontracting out to them. And we start working with bigger clients and it was awesome. Like I, I love the work we were doing. We were getting to work with cool clients like Target and Holiday Inn. And I wanted to do something kind of bigger and do something where we weren't just exchanging our time for dollars, which I think a lot of people that come from the agency world understand. So I decided to start a tech company because how hard could that be, right? <laughs> it turns Why not? out very hard. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who's who wants a spoiler, very hard. But you know, we we slogged away for about four years. We raised a bunch of venture. Um, things looked great from the outside. Forbes was calling us the next LinkedIn for women. It was a business wow. network for women entrepreneurs that we were building, and things looked great inside, not so great. <laughs> so <laughs> we definitely had not built the right product. We were good at marketing the product. Luckily, you know, my background came in handy and we were growing quickly from a acquiring new users perspective, but it wasn't sticky. People weren't hanging around. They weren't inviting their friends. It wasn't becoming a habit. And as a network, you need that. And so after really slogging away for a couple of years, got to the point where it's like, this isn't going to work and we need to say goodbye to it. And it was really painful. And so shut that down, trying to like licking my wounds, trying to figure out what am I going to do next? And what I was lucky about was that I'd built this amazing network within the tech community in Atlantic Canada Mm -hmm. and our lead investor, they came to me and they said, you are really good on the marketing side, not so great on the product side. Now we've got all of these teams that we've invested in who are great on the product side, but they don't have people who know that their products exist because they suck at marketing. Can you help them? And I was like, are you going to pay me? <laughs> They're like, of course. And I was like, okay, good. So Good talk. Uh, yeah, good time. Good time. So I got to go and sit down with all of these brilliant founders and, you know, ask the question that we marketers want to know, which is tell me about your customers. Mm. And really surprised to learn how often I couldn't get very good answers. 
things like, you know, we sell to businesses that sell on the internet with anywhere between 10 and 500 employees. And then there'd be a pause. And I would assume there's a lot more coming and then that would be it. <laughs> be like, That's so everyone, everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone, or I would hear founders like openly debating who the customer is in the meeting. So it'd be like, well, mm. we're going after this group. And then somebody else would perk up and go, yeah, but like they're kind of a target as well. And it was just really clear to me that like there was this lack of real depth of clarity on who the customers were and why those customers were buying. Mm -hmm. And that was leading to all sorts of challenges and mistakes. So that kind of like led to what the work I do today. I launched Customer Camp initially as a training company. And I worked with a lot of business support organizations, venture um, funds, innovation labs, and helping their teams to really get clear on who their customers are and why they buy. Yeah. And then that kind of sprung off to us doing some um, done for you research, qualitative research, helping companies to better understand their customers. We do, we only take on a few of those projects a year because we've got a pretty small team and it's not where we spend, want to spend the most of our time, yeah. but to make sure that we're being able to create the best training and products to teach people how to do this work, we want to obviously eat our own dog food and consistently be out there and doing it and refining and refining. So that's how I got to where I am today. But really like our, our focus and my passion is just helping companies to understand like what's happening in their buyers' lives that triggers them to realize they need a new solution. How, how do they go about looking and seeking solutions and what makes them choose ours or a competitors over the other options? And how can we leverage that information to market smarter? So that's what we're passionate about at Customer Camp. Yeah. What's so funny to me is it sounds incredibly simple when you explain it, but two things come to mind. One, it's not simple. And two, it's, it's something that is often overlooked. And, you know, one of the things in, in prepping for our conversation that I've noticed is, you know, you've kind of had this rallying cry around whoever gets closer to the customer wins. Can you just kind of unpack that a little bit? Like when you say getting closer, what does that actually mean? It means knowing more than like looking at a big set of data and saying, okay, like our customers are women age 24 to 36 who tend to live in cities like that stuff isn't, you know, it's great to have, it's going to help you to target better when it comes to where you want to put your ad placements and whatnot, but it's not the reason why people buy. Mm. And I think that as brands and business leaders, so often we have a very shallow view of who our buyers are. Mm. And we often only are really paying attention to the buying journey from when they discovered us. So there's so much rich insight you can gather from learning, you know, how customers go about looking for solutions like yours, and more importantly, what triggered them to begin the buying journey in the first place. And a lot of companies don't do that digging. And the reason why is it's, it's not as easy to get just by looking at data. Like you mm -hmm. have to go out and dig for it. You have to unearth it. You have to actually talk to buyers and really dig in and get them to unearth memories from their buying journey that they wouldn't give you through a survey mm -hmm. and that you couldn't get by looking at, you know, the clicks uh, a user had before they became your customer. So I think that a lot of times we want to get, you know, we want to use quantitative data to give us our, the answers that we need, but there's a lot of depth that it sometimes lacks and companies are not going out and getting that data and therefore they're missing that closeness with their customers that they could so benefit from. Well, obviously I'm preaching to the converted here, like <laughs> the companies that are doing it are having 
like incredible results. I love David Cancel, the CEO of Hub or of um, of Drift. Like they're one of the fastest growing SaaS companies in history. He's been banging this drum since the beginning, mm-hmm. and you know he finds time as the CEO of this fast growing company to go out and actually talk with customers and listen to them. And it's, so it's, I always find it very interesting when leaders often at much smaller <laughs> companies that are struggling say, oh, I don't have time for that. Or that's somebody else's job. Like it's mm-hmm. not my job to talk to customers. And you see the fastest growing companies, their leaders are doing it. Totally. Well, it's so funny you bring that up. Like one of the phrases that, that come, comes to mind is looking before you leap. And like, you know, talking to your customers before you go and spend a bunch of money or time or resources on doing marketing or doing sales, whatever, whatever makes sense to the business is, is something that I find a lot in, in conversations is people are, you know, they're busy because they're busy instead of like taking a step back and being like, how can I think about this strategically? How can I look before I leap so that when we actually start to move and use the company's budget, time, resources, what have you. Um, you know, we're doing it in an informed way. Have you seen that on your end? Absolutely. I love that you say they're busy because they're busy because one of the things that over the last year and a half, I, I think that all marketers benefit from understanding buyer psychology. You know, the more accurate term would be um, behavioral economics and behavioral economics what, it's not really been a thing for all that long. So it's not as though like, you know, marketers that have been working in the industry for 15, 20 years have just been ignoring this goldmine of insight. It's really, a, it's an emerging discipline. Mm-hmm. And I started getting really nerdy about behavioral economics like a year and a half ago. And the more that you learn about the brain, the more you can see how a lot of the mistakes that yeah. teams make are being fueled by this ancient hardware that we have, right? So you think about the brain, there's a great book, Thinking Slow and Fast or Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he describes system one and system two. And I might screw this up, but I'm pretty sure that system one is the kind of like intuitive, like emotional, like we're not really thinking deeply about it. And then there's like system two, where we actually have to put effort into problem solving and, and, you know, really rationalizing and, and thinking about the decisions we're making. And I think a lot of marketers are busy because we we don't want to spend time digging deep into the hard stuff. We want mm-hmm. to find answers fast because yeah. that's what our brain is designed to want. And then we want to start executing on those things. So we spend far too little time analyzing and trying to understand customers mm-hmm. and far too much time executing stuff that isn't necessarily aligned with what customers actually care about. Yeah. And that's the challenge I've seen a lot of marketers making. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's so funny. The, the other phrase, like, right, I, I have that one phrase of like, look before you leave. The second piece of this is actually a Charlie Munger quote, fish where the fish are. Yeah. And it's such a simple thing, like as marketers, and I kind of typically ram these two things together. I'm like, look before you leap so that you can fish where the fish are. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like such a simple concept, but it is often something that's kind of I guess, I guess overlooked speaking about like this, this kind of brought up something that I shared on LinkedIn. There was a New Yorker article that was posted and it was talking about like the the whole thesis of the article is it's time to stop talking about generations. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to just kind of get your hot take on this. Do you agree or disagree? Marketers place too much emphasis on demographics when it comes to building or refining strategy. Great question. And it's funny because this is what I wanted to get into. I think that (laughs) I think that they they place far too much um, focus on it because the re- that's not why people buy things. You know, you yeah. and I um, might be demographically similar in some ways and different in others. Like obviously, we're both Canadian. Mm-hmm. We might fall into the same kind of like ten year age bracket. We're both marketers, yeah. but 
when it comes to how we shop and the decisions that we make, we don't buy things because of those markers. You know, I don't buy things because I'm a 36 year old woman who lives in Nova Scotia, who likes drinking wine and listening to business podcasts. Those are attributes about me, but that doesn't explain why I buy. And so one of the things that I like to make clear when I talk about, you know, talk to your customers, there are so many people out there, myself included in the past. Again, like I learned from mistakes. Mm -hmm. I remember say we did a lot of customer discovery before we launched my tech company and i thought that we were validating that we were creating the right thing and we're going to build the right product and it turns out we're doing it completely wrong because we were getting people to fortune tell we were asking them we were i was you know pitching them on like this is the thing that we're building and what do you think and how great could it be and of course they're saying oh my god that's awesome and like you know what about this and what about that and the mistake that I think people make is they think that the goal in talking to customers is to ask customers what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's not, like that's not the approach you should take because customers, it's not their job to know what they want. Yeah. And the other thing that frustrates me that kind of is common is people will go, well, you can't ask customers what they want because, you know, they would have just said faster horses. Yeah. Well, for one, that quote is like untrue, like that there's no evidence that Henry Ford ever actually said that. But that's not what the marketing should be, or sorry, that's not what like customer discovery should be about. And what it really should be about is digging in beyond the demographics, beyond the you know firmographics of a business or psychographics of a person to understand the causal effects that are moving somebody to go from completely uninterested and like, you know, not in the buying journey to being triggered to begin to look for a solution as they start evaluating and looking for solutions. What are they considering? Kind of like, what is the criteria that matters to them? And the more that you learn about that, the more that you can identify, oh, our customers, maybe they are all students, but they're not buying because they're all students. They're buying because they're all facing this similar challenge. You know, when they get to college, they run into this thing. And so I'm a big believer in taking a step back and understanding first your target buyer based on the context of their situation. And then, you know, if you are like most businesses, you know, you have limited resources, which every business does, then going, okay, So we know that we could target buyers like this who have a similar context, a similar job to be done, or we could go after these folks, or we could go after these folks. And if we want to make the most compelling marketing, then we're probably going to want to double down on one of these audiences and really speak specifically to them, kind of like niche down. But it's not because of their demographics. It's because they share a similar context and the way that we can communicate with them and the, you know, the, maybe the places where they're hanging out, like all of that might be aligned. So I'd say, you know, going back to your original question, absolutely. Marketers are spending too much time just focused on generations. Like, you know, we sell to generation Z. Yeah. It's like, well, why is generation Z the one buying? That's what you want to unpack. Yeah. And then you still might be able to go, okay, so we do sell to generation Z, but it's not because of their age necessarily it's because of these causal reasons yeah but now where's generation z spending time right they're on tiktok and they're on college campuses and they're you know reading these publications so i think that you have to look at the causal reasons and the correlation and then like bring that together in your strategy Mm -hmm. well it's it's funny like 
this this article from the New Yorker that I was referencing came out a little while ago, and then recently on on LinkedIn and Twitter, there's been that meme where it's like Ozzy Osbourne and Prince Charles know, side by yeah. side, right? And it's like they demographically they all stack up, but in mm -hmm. terms of like how they roll is completely different. And so um, yeah, that's something that I've just been thinking a lot about is like just because you know who a person is demographically or who a customer is demographically, that doesn't arm you with how you should market to them or, or what makes them tick or what makes them want to buy. Right. And so that's something that I think that's a step change for, for marketing. Whereas like, you know, it used to be about like, who are we targeting? Cool. That's who we're targeting. Okay. Now run the marketing campaign and like Don Draper off you go. Mm -hmm. Whereas now to your, to your earlier point and, and, you know, what we've kind of been discussing is with it being so noisy and competitive out there, you have to go a layer deeper to give your, your brand a chance to even earn some of that attention. Absolutely. I've got a um, talk. If you want to, we can maybe link to it in the show notes. It's yeah. on why people really buy. And I kind of dig into this and unpack this more and share my own buying journey with buying a alarm clock. And, you know, I talk oh, interesting. about this is the demographic um, explanation of me, you know, 36 year old woman lives in Halifax, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the reason that I bought the alarm clock is because I had a very specific job to do. It was, yeah, I'd made a new year's resolution to get in shape. And yeah. part of that meant trying to get up 90 minutes earlier so I could have time to work out in the morning. And I was really struggling with that because I'd sleep with my phone by my bed. Like most of us do, I'd use it as an alarm clock, but it was also very tempting to stay up like scrolling on Twitter. And so when you look at the alarm clock that I ended up buying, it's this old school bell alarm clock. You can probably picture them. Nice. And the reason I bought that and I you know, went through quite a journey to find the solution was because I needed something that would force me to get out of bed earlier in the morning when I was tempted to sleep in. Mm -hmm. And I tried a bunch of different solutions. And the fact that it didn't have a snooze button, the fact that it was super loud, the fact that I could set it on the opposite side of my bedroom, so I'd have to literally get out of bed yeah. <laughs> to go turn it off. The fact that it was only $20, right? And that it was cute. Like all of the things that you learn about that buying journey, it's like, oh, well, if I sell alarm clocks, there's so much insight now into how to go after people like Caitlin. When you dig in, it's like, okay, like, well, why am I even trying to lose weight? And there were all these kind of like more emotional reasons. Like I do a lot of speaking and I want to be able to feel really confident on stage. And I also want to exercise because I'm in a really stressful work environment. And so you dig into all this stuff and suddenly a person, you know, the characteristics of a person like me start to emerge, but it's, you know, it's because of all of these other elements. So it's like, yeah, it's like high achievers, people who are probably fans of like James Clear and want to like use atomic habits, all of this kind of like cool stuff starts to emerge. Mm -hmm. But you see that through understanding the deeper side of the buying journey. Yeah. You can't gather that just by being like, okay, like here's all of like Caitlin's data points. You now <laughs> let's make sense of this, right? Yeah. That, that that does make a ton of sense. And yeah, now I'm like, do I need to be buying into alarm clock? You got me thinking over here. Well, funny <laughs> enough, a lot of people realize this because searches for old school alarm clocks spike in January. So like, but if you had that data point without the insight behind it, you might not know why, right? Hmm. And if you know that, you know, like, let's say you sell a old school alarm clock, you want to position your alarm clock as this like incredible, cool innovation. Um, it's kind of like the dumb phone. I don't know if you've heard of it. There's like, you know, we've got the smartphone and then a lot of people were getting so addicted to their phones that yeah. the company put out the dumb phone. Yeah. Well, the no snooze alarm clock, it's like what it doesn't have is the, is the value. Removing right? a key feature totally. <laughs> that previously was a feature that now might not be a great feature. 
Totally. And so like now you think about, okay, like if I know that my target buyers are buying this because they want to be able to wake up earlier because they want to like fit more fitness in, let's just say hypothetically, you decide that's who I want to go after. Yeah. Well, January only happens once a year, but guess what happens every day, all day? People get engaged and suddenly they go from, I want to like look amazing in my wedding dress or my tux. And then they start down the path of trying to figure out how they're going to create this new routine. And so like now you could start targeting that moment. So yeah. there's so much you can learn when you kind of dig in and get that backstory. And a lot of companies are missing it. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I kind of want to pivot a little bit here. It's, it's kind of been conventional wisdom that product features and, and prices is what has kind of been used to differentiate brands in the past. But over the last few years, I think we've seen that customer experience is really the thing that has kind of been the, the main differentiator. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? And, and if so, uh, how do marketers ensure that they're using insight to, to build a better customer experience? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with it. Like customer experience is part of it. I think that the other part of it is Mark, you know, the better marketers are winning. And the reason why it goes back to our ancient hardware, we don't want to spend an enormous amount of mental energy analyzing different products. You know, if you mm -hmm. go to search for an old school alarm clock and you go to Amazon, there are 40,000 listings. Like we do wow. not have the mental energy <laughs> to look at more than maybe five of those and yeah. try to dissect them and decide which one is the right one. Yeah. And so marketers can do us this huge service by really being clear about what their product's value is, how it's better, why it's the right solution for us. And then getting that word out through great marketing, through driving word of mouth with happy customers, because we don't wanna spend a lot of time analyzing feature for feature. We don't have the energy, good enough is good enough. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there's always a new project management software being released. And for a moment, I'll see it. Like I know I've looked at ClickUp a little bit and I've thought like, mm, should I move over? And then I like remind myself, like every time I move, it's never that much better. And I'm just like, you know, I'm, it's just a distraction because like, yes, there's probably a, a software with a better feature. Yes, there's a product that's probably better than the one you're using today, but oftentimes good enough is good enough. <laughs> and yeah. We, we need to realize that our consumers are not making super rational, always well-informed decisions. Mm -hmm. They are trying to decide quickly so they can turn their brain back off and go on autopilot. Decision and fatigue is real. Absolutely. And the clearer we can be about why us and the better we can be about just showing up so that we're top of mind, the more effective we're going to be able to be in our marketing. I love, I'm reading this great book right now, which your listeners would probably like. Um, it's called Blindsight, and mm. it's written by a you know career marketer and a behavioral economist, and they wrote it together, and they have a business together called uh, Pop Neuro. I think it's Pop Neuro. Um, and in Blindsight, they talk about like, you know, the associations that smart brands make and how it takes them a long time, and they just commit. Like, when you think about, you know, let's assume that this is before the coronavirus, because obviously the word corona has taken off. <laughs> A new meaning but when you used to think about the beer corona like what would be the first thing that came to your mind a beach exactly <laughs> they've spent an incredible amount of energy associating their brand with relaxation in the sun right yeah. and so that is an incredibly powerful thing and there are so many light beers out there but the fact that that's the what you think of when you think of a corona like what do you think of when you think of coca-cola 
Ooh, I would think Coca-Cola. I would say polar bears or like an ice cold Coca-Cola in a glass with like the fizziness at the top. The fizziness at the top, right? Like, and Coca-Cola has done something. Now this is, it's interesting because you didn't, you didn't say what I was expecting you to say, but like what, according to the book. And like, when I think about it from my own perspective of Coca-Cola, the big thing that they tried to own is happy. Like they, yes. Coke is happy. Like yep. ha Coke is a happiness and like Red Bull, Red Bull tastes terrible. Like in blind studies before it was released, everybody said it was disgusting. And yet it became one of the like fastest selling drinks in the world. And it's from this idea of, you know, energy, Red Bull gives you wings. Now there's so many other energy drinks out there, but does any own the like mind share that Red Bull has because they said it first and they did it well. So like, I think that, we as marketers, it's, you know, our opportunity is to spend time thinking about how to best position our product mm -hmm. the way that, you know, this, an alarm clock company could by being the no snooze alarm clock yeah. and then really, really go deep there. Yeah. I want to just expand a, a little bit more into this. You know, we, we've talked a lot about customer experience and I feel like other kind of like phrases surround this, whether it's customer research, personas, customer journeys, all that sort of stuff. How do you kind of see that from a process perspective? Are a lot of that stuff necessary? I think from my perspective, I've watched these kind of two camps form on some people are pro persona and other people are like anti persona. Where do you kind of sit within all that? Is all that necessary? What do you think? My goal is ultimately like what's going to actually create the most value internally. And yeah. I think that there is value to having personas, but the value is much more limited than a lot of people would like us to believe as, as people that are trying to sell us on the, the practice. Yeah. You know, when you have a growing team and you have new stakeholders coming in, if you really do understand who your customers are, not just from a demographic, psychographic, from a graphic perspective, but like what are, what is it that they're trying to achieve? What's the context of their situation? And what moment is our product? the best and you can put all of that into you know a page a two-page document to give somebody a crash course and yeah. as they're just getting started i think that's a great resource to have i think that the, it falls apart when that's all that companies are doing mm -hmm. so when companies have this one document that lives somewhere you know in a google um folder and you see it once and then it disappears the problem with that document that I've seen is that that, again, like you go back to like, how do our brains work? They don't work that way. We do not remember data points about people. We do not remember like, okay, like our customers, you know, there's these three personas and marketing Mary has two kids and a dog. And like, what we remember is things that happened more recently. And we remember stories. But what I've been pushing for is this new method that I call the trigger technique, um, which I can, again, share a link to a, a Twitter thread where I outline this. But like the yeah. goal of the trigger technique is I believe marketers are often not given a lot of time for going out and talking to customers because it's perceived to take a long time. And it historically has, you know, mm -hmm. like I hear all these horror stories from marketers, some at small companies, some at big brands that some people go off on the team and spend, you know, two, three months doing qualitative research and then come back and like have this report and they drop it on everybody's desk and it's heavy and full of stats and data and people go, okay, nice. And then they, you know, they forget about it. Yeah. And I think that that way of doing customer research, well, it makes us feel good as researchers because it feels like we've gone out and gathered enough. It's not actionable. Mm -hmm. and it's easily forgotten and again like this idea of like we remember what is recent and so what i'm pushing for is a 
this idea of using even a single buyer journey interview with a with the right customer and being able to extrapolate the most important pieces from that what i call like the cornerstone insights which is like what was the buying trigger what was the job they were trying to get done what were their pains with other solutions and what were their selfish desires because if you can pull those four things out of an interview suddenly you have the like needed foundation to figure out some really exciting stuff from a marketing perspective. So you can figure out like, who's the right target buyer? What are the right target moments? So instead of thinking about channels, think about what are the moments where they might identify that they have this job to be done? Where else are they looking for potential solutions? How do they go about looking? And then, you know, what's the right promise that we should give? Like, and how do we create a call to action that's maybe compelling? And all of this can lead to these really, really great marketing ideas. And I think that it's this bridge between these places where teams tend to be on the qualitative research side, which is either we go off and we spend months doing it. And then the output is this report that nobody pays attention to, or Mm -hmm. we don't do it. And we're fueled only by quantitative and maybe we're doing the odd survey, but like really not spending that much time getting first party data. I think there needs to be a bridge between those two things. And I think that the trigger technique works great because it's a great way to get new team members to quickly build empathy with your target buyers. If this was being done, let's say on a larger team, and there was somebody who's going out and kind of like feeding these insights on a consistent basis back to the rest of the team, then you get that recency bias, right? People remember that. And they're being and those stories that they're hearing about a single buying journey. Because that's the other thing that annoys me. Like a lot of personas try to put together this like holistic buying journey. Yeah. But yes, because like that buying journey, you can't take 30 different interviews and like put that all into this one. Nobody buys like that. No, nobody buys like that. And so if you actually hear one story from one real buyer and the picture of the person isn't this random stock photo, but it's the actual (laughs) picture of the person, that's the way to build empathy faster and it and fast matters in companies because again, we don't want to think very hard. I don't know if I, I think I went on a bit of a tangent there, but yes, I think personas have value, but I think they're limited. Mm-hmm. And I think that they should be complemented yeah. by consistent, um, you know, one-on-one discussions with customers because yeah. even though each conversation is going to glean new insights and interesting anecdotes. It's more about the marketer just having the opportunity to feel that closeness with the customer and to spur those ideas that they wouldn't have had otherwise. You don't have to pretend like it's this exercise that you go off and do once and now you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the the persona thing was probably more relevant back in late 90s and, and 2000s. And as things have progressed in terms of how competitive it is to earn someone's attention, how many options and choices are out there, how many data sets are available, how many people like yourselves who are preaching to, to go talk to customers, like there's so much more that you can do. And it's like, if, if persona was kindergarten, like we should be in university by now. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, digging a little bit into your Twitter archives here, you said before that people buy from brands that they know, like, and trust but that too many marketers focus on being known while little focus on being liked and trusted. And those are kind of afterthoughts. How does a brand go about becoming better liked and and trusted? Well, I mean, this is a bit cliche because you're hearing it a lot more these days, but I feel like every brand really does need to think of themselves as a media company. There's lots of changes happening in the environment all the time. And there always is, but like the, you need to think about 
how do we get in front of people and have them pay attention, right? Because like, I love that the, I love that the phrase pay attention uses the word pay because like we only have a limited amount of time. And yeah. when we spend time somewhere, it means we're not spending it somewhere else. So there is a cost to our attention. Yeah. And if we want to get people to pay attention, we need to get in front of them with in- stuff that inspires and entertains and delights and educates them. And that's not ads. So, you know, sometimes it's an ad, yeah. but most, most of the time it's not. And yeah. so I think that that like and trust factor comes from doing the hard work of building a canon of awesome content that people want to engage with mm-hmm. and leveraging the people who your brand already cares about and is already interested in, in authentic ways to get in front of them through those channels. So I think that, you know, we spend so much time thinking about, you know, when people are actively looking for solutions like ours, for instance, uh, Casper, like, you know, Casper was the original uh, bed in a box company, but there are actually hundreds of competitors now. And when you Google Casper, the first thing you see is five ads of other brands competing against them saying, you know, talking smack, being like, you know, cheaper, better quality, blah, 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 than Casper. And so Casper now needs to go out and defend for people that are actively looking for their solution. The challenge that a lot of these bed in a box companies and the same is true with the uh, meal kit companies is they really didn't do the work to differentiate. And so when the manufacturing of bed, you know, beds in a box became easy enough that other customers could go and do it. Like why buy a Casper over another one? It's, it's unclear. Mm -hmm. And so that like and trust factor, I think Headspace, the uh, meditation app, they, I don't know if I'm assuming this would have been a paid thing, but they have a mini series on Netflix all about sleep science. Yep. And that's genius, right? Like you're not just creating ads. You're not just doing a podcast. You're actually inserting yourself into a place where people are already looking for a solution like yours and telling a really compelling, entertaining story. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. A lot more brands recognizing we, we really need to, be at the forefront and think of ourselves as, as media companies, if we're going to earn and keep our audience's attention. Yeah, I completely agree. There's, there's a few things that, that pop into mind there. Number, number one always kind of comes back to this idea. And I've asked clients this over the years is if you didn't sell your product, what would your business talk about or say? Mm -hmm. And like, that's a really great way to kind of frame it up is like, okay, great. You sell mattresses. Cool. Imagine if for a day you weren't allowed to talk about mattresses or talk about you know, that, what else would you talk about that is relevant to you as a brand? And I, so I think like the Casper example is brilliant. Cause it's like, yeah, there is, you know, that sleep side of it or whatever. It makes me also think back to, you know, what you said about Red Bull earlier was, you know, the idea there was that whether you buy the product or not, you're going to spend time with our brand through content and through yeah. other places online. And, you know, I think we're seeing other businesses do that. We're seeing HubSpot acquire the hustle. So, you know, whether, whether you're again a HubSpot customer or not, we know that you're interested in business. Therefore, we are going to create an ecosystem where, yeah, whether you buy from us or not, you're still going to spend time with an extension of our brand. I know Shopify oh. is also doing the same thing with Shopify Studios. They want to create content all around entrepreneurship because, like, that's what their product enables. And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating to to see that. But I think about you know, you, you say it's cliche. I, I would tend to agree with you as like, it's been being preached for a long time, but, but talking about it and doing it are two very different things. That's right. And I think that it, I think that one of the things that we as marketers suffer from that maybe our clients um, or customers 
do not have nearly as much familiarity is like the curse of knowledge, right? Like we spend yeah. every day thinking about like, how can I market smarter? Like, how can I create this really compelling and worthwhile experience for potential buyers? Whereas our customers aren't thinking about how marketing works. Like yeah. they're just on the receiving end of it. It. and mm-hmm. to that point around like you know what else is going to make people like and trust us another huge opportunity and this is something that the best brands have always done is community right like you yeah. think about red bull why did red bull build the audience that it built so quickly like i don't know if this is a thing in vancouver but it certainly was here like do you have um jaeger bombs is that a, something you've heard of yeah of course yeah, so like you take two of the like things that are perceived to be some of the grossest in the beverage industry, Jaeger, which was not a popular liqueur for a long, long time, and Red Bull, which is at the time kind of like an emerging brand. It's like building awareness, but like, and you combine those two things. What was it that spread the awareness of both of those things? It was the community element. It was getting probably hiring recruiters to get people into bars and getting them to buy them Red Bull shot or like Jaeger bombs. The community piece of it's really big too. And I think a lot of brands, a lot of smart brands have been doing that forever, mm-hmm. but other brands are now recognizing, okay, it's not enough for us to have a great product and yeah. it's not enough for us to have great content or, you know, be really good on social. We also need to be able to bring our people together yeah. and let them connect with each other beside us leading the charge, like letting them be leaders and letting them be part of it too. And some really smart brands are doing that really well. And other brands are paying attention and trying to figure out how do I do it? Yeah. Bingo. I couldn't agree more. I think it's something that we're going to continue to see, especially with this kind of pendulum between brand and performance in marketing that we've seen, right? Like I think a lot of pre-COVID, the economy was good businesses revenues were good. So there was a lot of like investment in brand community building, that sort of thing. COVID hits, the pendulum swings back the other way because maybe some money taps have kind of turned off, so to speak. And they're like, how are we maximizing for dollars in the door? And now, like, I think, you know, two years into this thing, we're seeing the pendulum kind of come back into the middle where it's like, you can't just optimize for performance and conversion. You have to be kind of focused on that that brand building, that community aspect. And so I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I want to kind of, as we start to wind down this episode, I have a few more kind of, kind of quick questions here. Um, What are you most excited about when it comes to marketing today? Could be a trend, could be a brand. I think what I'm most excited about, and a lot of marketers are going to grimace when they hear this, but I think what I'm most excited about is the shifts that have happened, particularly in the privacy space, and the tracking space that it, that's going to make it harder for you know Facebook and Google to track what we're doing and serve up the right content to us because I think what will come from that is yeah. a real need for businesses to better understand their buyers because they can't just like you know throw money at Google and Facebook and let them figure it out anymore. Like mm. we need to be, we need to inform um, the message more. We need to be clear about who we want to get in front of. And I think that that's going to ultimately be really good for brands and really good for consumers and potential customers mm-hmm. because we you know we're all sick of getting like marketed to, and we we want to have a you know better online experiences. And so I'm excited about that shift because I think that you know we don't do anything in life unless usually there's some type of push or pull right yeah here we're pushed by a pain or pulled by something that's attractive well a lot of brands now are getting pushed to do things differently because of covid because of all these changes and i think that on a whole 
that's going to be a really good thing. And I think it's going to lead to more creativity. I think it's going to lead to smarter um, use of budget. I think mm-hmm. it's going to lead to better experiences for customers. So I'm excited with that. Yeah. And so next question here, I'm a huge, I full disclosure, I dropped out of university. I'm a huge advocate for reading and consuming information. That's kind of like how I got into everything. Like I don't have a marketing degree or a business degree or any degree for that matter. Um, so I always ask, how do you stay up to date on, on business and marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? Who are you listening to? Great question. Um, I would say, honestly, like Twitter is my favorite source of information. I follow marketers that I'm inspired by. I, you know, they, when they drop a link to a new podcast episode, if the topic looks interesting, I listen to it. Mm -hmm. If they are, you know, a lot of people are doing some really killer tweets threads that like are basically better than blog posts that are out there. So like, (laughs) I, I find a lot of content there. Um, and beyond that, I spend less time, I would say, reading books about marketing. I used to read a lot. And so I, I, you know, if if you're coming into your career and you're newer, definitely spend some time there. The tech and this, like, you know, the tech and the channels and all of that stuff, it's always going to be changing. And we're always, you're always going to feel like you're behind the eight ball on something. Like I still don't have a TikTok account. It's an important choice for me because I'm like, I do not want to be addicted to something else right now. Oh, you will. They'll get you. Yeah. I know how sticky it is. And so like, (laughs) I also feel like as a marketer, a lot of shame around that. So I'm like, how am I completely ignoring this massively important platform? But from a personal perspective, I'm like, I just, I, I can't do it. And so there's always going to be another TikTok, right? There's always going to be another marketing tool that's out there that's claimed to be the best one. What's not going to change is the way that the human mind works and the way that we make decisions and the cognitive biases we have and how they fuel us this way and that way. So I'm spending a lot more time focusing there than I am on kind of the more traditional marketing content these days. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Last question. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you? Twitter. <laughs> well, like I spend lots of time on Twitter. I try to be responsive to every um, every message. So you can find me at uh, Kate Bohr, K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. And that's probably the best place. I'm a new mom, as we were talking about before we hit uh, play on this. Yeah. And so it takes me a little bit longer to get back than it used to. Sometimes I'll look at something, plan to respond, and then completely forget because a baby starts crying. <laughs> so. Yeah. If you don't hear back from me right away there, hit me up again. Uh, I'm less responsive to emails and LinkedIn messages. I feel like, again, like I feel like I need to kind of be really focused. So if you if you want to chat, that's probably the best place to get me. Yeah, well, as someone who who discovered you and started following you on Twitter, I can I can vouch that you're you're a worthwhile follow. I've definitely in, enjoyed watching your your tweets and and picking up little nuggets of wisdom over over the years. So yeah, everyone follow Caitlin on Twitter. Great follow. Well, Caitlin, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really appreciated chatting with you. I learned a bunch talking to you in person after following you for many, many years. Um, I'm sure the audience did the same. So thank you very much. Thank you. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.